I have not ever to this point trained them uh, for any like substantial length of time to get to the bottom of a, of a goblet squat and they can still do it. Um, like they, they have never lost that ability with four years of training age under them. At the same time, I've given them a lot of like reference points to hit in the bottom of a squat. So whether we're going down to a box or whether we're using a band, which is a little bit of a softer stop on something like that. Um, I give them a reference point to feel where I would like them to end at. And then I see how quickly they can redirect back up. So if it's a band, you know, I might set the band at parallel uh, squat depth for them. They go down, they, they feel the band on the back of their legs and they reverse up as quickly as possible. And I'm looking for those first couple of inches to be as dynamic as it can be out of the bottom. That was Eric Huddleston, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Uh, whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, I And not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So uh, I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the uh, the feeling of training of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another podcast. Thanks for being a part of this uh, series, and it's great to have you all here today. Our guest for today's podcast is Coach Eric Huddleston. Eric is currently the Director of Performance at IFAST, or Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training, and he's a performance consultant for a number of professional baseball and basketball teams. Eric has also spent time in the NCAA uh, working for Indiana University and Texas Tech with the men's basketball programs there. On the show today, Eric will speak on connecting things that are seen on the court or the field of play uh, to the gym, and one of the specific elements of focus here will be jumping. Eric will spend a lot of time speaking on how do we manage our squat training, um, both technique and exercise selection, in light of what we're seeing from athletes in terms of their individual shapes and structures, and maximizing their response to the squat training in the program. He's also going to get into single leg squatting mechanics. Uh, as well as a really cool and important talk on novice versus elite athletes in regards to being either early or late stance dominant. And that was something that just generated so many thoughts and ideas for me, and I'm sure it will for you as well. This whole conversation really piqued my curiosity, and it's really fun to talk with people as intelligent as Eric in the world of biomechanics and relating what we see on the field of play to what we see in the gym Definitely next level stuff, and I'm excited to get the podcast to you guys. Let's get on to it. Episode 269 with Coach Eric Huddleston. 
Eric, welcome to the show. Uh, can we start off by chatting a little bit about, I know you've spent time uh, in the private training sector uh, and then as well as in the collegiate sector. Tell me a little bit about um, what, are, what are some of the things that you've enjoyed or learned from being in each of those types of training arenas? Yeah, Joel. Uh, first of all, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, this is this is a really awesome opportunity. So uh, thanks for that. Um, differences between the, the kind of public and private sector. Um, I would say for the most part, like being in the college setting, especially like in, you know, my experiences with basketball. So it's going to be pretty limited in terms of like the view. I've never been in an Olympic weight room. We've always kind of had our separate spaces with the basketball team. So um, a lot of times, I think one of the biggest like glaring things right now is that I would have, you know, freshman division one scholarship athletes come in the room and basically have had zero training experience, um, you know, outside of basketball related stuff. And so, um, you know, now I kind of have this opportunity. I think the youngest kid that I have right now is 13 and and that's still on the younger side. Um, and they're not necessarily doing a lot of weight training. It's more just like, you know, GPP work, but, um, definitely like kind of the attitudes in the room and, and the environment, uh, is kind of whatever you make it in the private sector. And, and a lot of times when you're in the team setting, it's, it's really based on how the players are feeling that day, how the athletes are responding to you. Um, that's why I think a lot of times like college strength coaches get the, get the culture tag put on them is because like you have to be the energy guy. And so you are the one consistent thing for them at the college setting. You also see them more than any other coach does. So the rules are kind of set up to, to your advantage because you spend more time with the athletes than anyone else does as a support staff member. And so those are just like, you know, right now I have, if I have a kid, you know, three times a week, that's three hours out of 168 hours in their week that they're spending with me. And so, you know, I don't get to see them play their sport. Um, I, I rarely ever get to attend their practices or anything like that. And so it can be like both have their their pros and cons. The, the cool thing about my job right now is like, even though I don't get to see them succeed in a lot of times, like a lot of stuff now is video. Um, and so I can I can go back and like watch their game tapes or, or you know, see what they were talking about when they when they were doing that. Um, or they will, you know, they'll just like come in the room and be very, very excited about like, hey, I you know, I dunked yesterday with two hands for the first time, or I did, you know, I, I, I felt myself like cut somebody off and make the right angle to track them down, um, in soccer and like cut them to the sideline. So, um, stuff like that, when they come in and they're ready to tell you about like what success they had, um, is really cool. And I, you know, I'm, I usually get kids after school, which is like mind blowing to me because I'm sure that they're exhausted and like, I'm probably the last person or the last thing on their list that they need to get done um, outside of schoolwork and, and sports and all that. And so I'm really like honored most of the time to have kids, you know, still want to come in and see me, um, you know, athletes still want to take times out of their busy schedules to come in and work with me. So, um, you know, both can be very, very rewarding. I just think that, and maybe it's just, you know, a, a college versus any other team setting and, and my bias is pretty narrow in that but um i think that just like the level of of reward that i get from what i do right now is really really cool yeah uh one of the things well i'll say a couple of things one is i do think it's interesting i i feel like on the college level or university level it's the strength coach is viewed as just as much as someone who has a certain set of skills it's also like an archetype like it's this type of person with like the cultural um whatever culture that the coach is looking to create so i i always felt like that was versus i don't think people look at that in the private sector so much. I don't think people send their 
their kids to the local gym because of uh you know they the, the who the you know sports performance specialist is it seems like it's more about the set of skills once you get in that setting i mean you'd agree with that wouldn't you right absolutely yeah my my business right now like we do zero advertising at ifast and so um you know my business is all word of mouth and i think you know, you, you kind of have to provide people with the success that they're looking for to get that kind of return. Um, like if kids weren't getting better and, and, you know, their numbers and their output wasn't going up and they weren't feeling better and they weren't, you know, returning from, from whatever injury that they had quicker, um, I would probably be out of a job because, you know, then they're not telling their friends to go see me. So it's, it's a really kind of cool, rewarding circular system that we work in. Yeah, one of the things, and so you mentioned video, and I didn't have this question necessarily pre-planned, but I'm very interested in it because I've seen you do some video breakdowns uh, of basketball. And I mean, even if it's not a bunch of other sports, I think we can all resonate with a lot of the general movement characteristics of basketball, moving laterally, accelerating, those types of things. But are there any common things that you look at when you look at someone's video that you might be addressing in a gym? I'm sure this could feed into some of the other questions that we have, but like, are there, uh, yeah, common movements um uh, patterns that you look for that you'll address in the gym specifically? Yeah, I think that for the most part, um, you know, an ability to, to kind of translate through the faces of gate is something that I look at and it's, it's very speed dependent when you're looking at something like that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of coaches will tell kids, you know, get your hips lower in a defensive stance or, or, you know, make sure that you're, if you're on your heels, you're beat already. And, and, I think we can all kind of agree at this point being outside of the coaching room, that that's probably not true. Um, you know, some kids are, are naturally not going to be able to get lower in that athletic stance. And so you telling them to get lower is likely just going to make them dump their chest forward. Um, and the fact is that if I'm on my toes, I am constantly going forward. So it's really, really easy. If someone is a, is a decent ball handler and can get you off balance while you're continuously transitioned forward, um, it's going to be easy to make a move past you because you have nowhere to go backwards to. So um, those are the kind of like common sports misconceptions that a lot of the kids like will get stuck into. Another one that I see a lot is like coaching somebody out of a false step. So telling them that, you know, to, to be able to accelerate forward, that their first step has to be forward to cover ground. Um, that's not how physics works. That's, that's absolutely not how, you know, force is going to be uh, going to be, you know, sent linearly if, if you take that step forward first, rather than, you know, allowing yourself that split second to make that adjustment and, and put the foot back um, and, and then drive forward. So you have to be able to create an angle. And so I'm looking at a lot of angular stuff when I, when I'm looking at tape, um, obviously like kids want to show me highlight stuff. So like they, they're interested in their dunk, um, you know, I'm, if I'm looking at a dunk, I'm probably a little bit more interested in, in, you know, what the feet are doing when they're, when they're at the ground. So, um, other than that, like it, it's cool stuff to look at and it, it does definitely helps me, but I, I try to put them in a situation in the gym where they are constantly kind of making mistakes. Um, and then we can kind of, you know, correct that or, or have them make the mistake often enough that they'll find it on their own. I think Lee Taft's really good with that. And, and I've heard him say before, like, like you don't coach somebody out of the plyo step because that's what they're going to do naturally anyways. And they know what the right kind of what the right angle is and they're not thinking about it. Um, and so I think that's important. And I think that, you know, letting them make mistakes in the gym and having an environment that kind of encourages them to, to, to learn from that is, is helpful for a lot of kids. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see. I, I 
really love watching what athletes do when uncoached and in competition. And it's just so interesting how, I don't know why we think that we are smarter than that so often rather than observing it and saying, okay, this is what really good athletes do in competition with all this information going on. And I, I track is you know, an easy language for me to speak to, like how often do athletes get coached to have this really long first step in out of the blocks. And then you watch actual competition and that long step gets really short <laughs> because right. they need to, they need to be as fast as they can. And so I think, yeah, the same thing with the plyo step. I, I wonder actually how many kids who are coached not to do a false step will actually carry that into competition. You know what I'm saying? And actually retain it. Like it, it seems like it does it not be- happen. Yeah, you'd have, to, you'd have to be the ultimate robot of an athlete. You'd have to, like, ignore your instincts and still, I don't yes. know, be crazy. Yeah, it's like, you know, when, like, you'll you have a kid who's not necessarily coordinated and, like, you're going through, like, a skip progression and they, like, they know that something's wrong, but you actually have to, like, they're thinking about it too much and they're like, okay, right arm, right leg goes up or right arm and left leg goes up. And they, like, so they're thinking through it. Like, you can tell like I've actually like done exactly what you're talking about and like made them do the, the, like get rid of the, the plyo step or the false step and the amount of thinking they have to do before they make that step, because it feels so unnatural to them. is crazy. It's like when they, when they're skipping incorrectly, like they can feel something's wrong, but they're like, I'm just going to go with it anyways. Cause like, I'm supposed to be going forward and this looks like the right rhythm. So yeah, it's like, that is, you are coaching them out of something that is so like primal in nature for them if they played sports at all before. So yeah, like I don't understand why we're taking away something that is, is not only very, very natural for them, but also super beneficial for the movement that they're doing like subsequent to that. So. Yeah. When I see athletes, um, if it's game speed, usually that, and they have a good athletic background, that usually seems to shore up a lot of errors. It usually seems like I have to slow things down before the people who actually think too much will start making errors. Like I'll, the people who think too much, I'll do, we'll just be doing a lunge variation and they're having the same, <laughs> the leg that's going forward, they'll be bringing the same side arm forward. I'm like, how did you, like, it's almost like, I don't know, it's something's not right that that's happening. I don't think that's their natural instinct because clearly when you run, you don't do that. So mm-hmm. why did it have to become a lunge for you to start <laughs> making this mistake? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I like how what you said too. Like, I think it's so, uh, Bobby White said it when he, he was also a basketball guy and strength guy when he was on the show is like parents or coaches are always like, get down, you know, and get in a diff- more of a defensive stance. And it's like, little Timmy can't, he can't do it. And so I'd love to get into, uh, and that's really a big thing that I want to get into this show is connecting some of these movements on the court with, uh, as you talked about, like the early stance, the mid stance, I'm still trying to wrap my head around a lot of this stuff. So I'm really excited to dig into this with you, but maybe we could start there. So someone who um, can't get down, get low on the court, they have a problem with that. I know Ty Terrell's been on the show talking about squatting in an elevator I think to me, that's the easiest way I just see that is the ability to manage the pelvic floor. But I'd like to get into it from the feet up too, and and like the early stance, the mid stance. So could you maybe kick it off by sharing a little bit about just getting in a low position, level changes, uh, what that means from, I mean, yes, squatting, but also like the, yeah, the stance, the phases of stance and the feet. Right. Yeah. So from a, from a squatting standpoint, if you want to start there, it's like, uh, I, I'm sure that like everybody, you know, almost everybody who's, who listens to this probably has, has recognized or heard before with, with people that they work with that, you know, there is this kind of forward orientation that a lot of people have. So we're being driven forward from behind. Um, 
kind of like what you look at when you look at gate with that is, is like a constant falling and catching yourself as you go forward. And that's necessary for certain things. And we'll get to that later. But um, I think the most important thing to recognize first is that, you know, if I, if you exaggerate this and, and if anybody listening stands up and just like leans forward, like watch where your tibia goes. And so as you get kind of this, this more anterior translation of your tibia, those are movements that are going to be, as long as the heels on the ground, those are movements towards middle propulsion. So um, as soon as the calcaneus breaks the ground, you're, you're into a later phase of propulsion. Um, but, but if tibia isn't, isn't vertical and starts to break forward, you are moving towards the middle portion of propulsion. And that's more of an IR bias in general. So let's say like someone comes and they're squatting and, and you're noticing a ton of like horizontal pelvic displacement. So their hips are going back, their chest is dumping forward. It looks very much like what you would want if you were going to have them do a trap bar deadlift. Um, if they're already biased towards that middle point of propulsion, they're going to continue to follow those tibias forward. And so they're going to be unable to, to have any type of vertical displacement of their pelvis down in a squat. Um, that's, they're already in kind of an IR bias there. And so they're going to follow that forward because IR doesn't allow for a lot of, you know, what we would consider like general movement qualities or a lot of like fluid variation and movement. Um, IR is compression. IR is, you know, force production. Um, it's not necessarily, not necessarily like fluidity of movement or, or, you know, what people would consider mobility or flexibility. Um, it is meant to block things from happening. It's meant to help you compress and, and to, to produce force and do all those things. So when somebody is already kind of in that point um, and you ask them to change levels in any way, um, there's compensation that happens. They, they understand from like a vestibular standpoint that they have to get lower to the ground and they can feel that. But that's what I'm talking about when, when I talk about like they're just going to dump their chest and kick their hips back because that feels lower to them. And so if, if you're, you know, a sport coach or, or, you know, an athlete that, that's constantly being told to get lower and you find that the only thing that you can do is start staring at the ground, um, that probably tells you where you're at in a lot of those positions. And so, you know, for me, um, my athletes are kind of all over this, this spectrum. If you're looking from, from, you know, early to, to middle to late, um, you know, a lot of the higher end athletes that I work with are, are, more biased towards this middle or late propulsion. And so for them to squat, um, I kind of have to bring the ground up to them. I have to, you know, predispose their position to be, to be able to have a, a vertical shin angle. And that's where the heel boards and the slant boards come into, come into play for a lot of the athletes that I work with. So you give them the resource, you, you predispose the position from the ground up to be able to, to sit vertically you know, down through a, through a range of motion, through a sticking point in a squat. Um, from a foot position, what I see a lot of mistakes on, and it, it's getting to be a little bit more prevalent as the use of a slant board becomes more prevalent, but having only half of your foot or just your heel on the slant actually doesn't put you in an early position. So the unfortunate thing is that uh, when first met head is flat on the ground, and you've got, you know, a, an elevated calcaneus, the, the bias is still towards, towards IR. And so you're actually ending up with a middle propulsive position still. Mm. Um, so, you know, people that, you know, we're lucky, you know, I work at a gym that, that is really, really supportive of this kind of thing. And so 
you know, we bought slant boards, we bought slant boards in a ton of different varieties of degrees so we can meet people kind of where they're at. The unfortunate thing is a lot of people will just put, you know, a plate, a five pound plate or something under somebody's heels. And while it probably helps in terms of like the depth that they're achieving, it's not because of the reasons that, that you would probably want when you're looking to do something like that. So yeah. Um, you know, we've got people that kind of start in all of these different phases. And, and I think the big one, you know, for, for athlete health and kind of keeping them in a, in, in, you know, on the field, on the court, um, if they're spending too much time and they're too shoved forward through middle and into late, um, access into early is going to be kind of the key. So bringing them, you know, being able to bring them backwards, have them, have them, you know, have some posterior expansion qualities, being able to, to decelerate appropriately, being able to just distribute force appropriately. Those are all kind of things that I'd, I'd be looking for with an early position. That's cool. I, I remember so when, when Connor Harris was on recently, he was talking about the, the slant board. And I'm glad you brought up too the, the elevating heel versus a slant board because I've, I think, <laughs> until this past year, to be honest, I've just elevated heels. And then I finally had access to a slant board like this past year. Like, well, this thing is amazing. Uh, and I, it, it makes sense. Uh, but I know when Connor, we were talking about just the IR and the ER, the tibias, he probably did mention what you just mentioned as well with like the, the fact that you're in more plantar flexion, like, but I, it makes it the way you just said, it makes it easier for me to understand that element of it. If the athlete in basketball is always like knees forward, kind of on their toes more then they usually don't have that plantar flex position where they start from. So, and the, also what, what's interesting to me though. So it makes me think too, yeah, if they're always when I think internal rotation and basketball, I kind of think of Michael Jordan guarding Allen Iverson. If you've seen that where he has to yeah. like sit and I don't know what position he's in for that, to be honest. I, I mean, he's he's because you're you're six, six and you have to guard Alan, like, you know, five eleven. like that is a very unique proposition. <laughs> but right. he is so like he is super bent over, super internally rotated. And it has this massive triangle because it's the only way from. I don't even know what's going on in the body, but just physics, just pure physics. That's the only way that he can get the lateral ability to guard Allen um, in that situation. So I am curious. I'm sure a lot of athletes can, quote unquote, make it work a little bit, but that doesn't certainly mean it's optimal. And so to actually get the pelvic floor to descend and everything to drop, they need to have a little bit of that, like knees out and supination and expansion uh, to get down there. And then that's where the at the bottom, it would be like the reversal. Then there's that IR kicks in to compress and come back up. Right. Yeah. As you descend in a squat, you're actually, so there's, you know, initial point of kind of relaxing and allowing gravity to do its job when you're at the top to to start to descend. Um, That's going to be, you know, kind of an ER bias at the top. You go through a middle range. So usually everybody's sticking point um, is, is about parallel or 90 degrees of hip flexion. So you pass through that point and that becomes a very middle range. And then all the way at the bottom. So if you're, you know, like third world squatting, sitting on your heels, that type of thing is, um, is very, very biased towards early. That's, you know, very vertical shin, a lot of posterior expansion force on the tibia is kind of being directed back on both legs. And so that that's a little bit more gaitish, but, um, it's, it's interesting what you just said about, you know, the, the drop your chest, like that's. I, I don't want people to think that that's bad. Um, like compensation is necessary in a lot of environments. Like there, we're also asking in that situation, you're asking Michael to Jordan to do something um, incredibly difficult and, and it's task completion. Like 
compensation is necessary. It's just two competing demands happening in a system at the same time. And like, you're just getting an outcome to complete a task. And so that's not inherently bad. So people saying that like compensation is, 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 you know, a poor choice. It's not a poor choice. You just have to have resources outside of that compensation. Um, you don't want to live in that compensation all the time. If Michael Jordan walked around like <laughs> how he looked when he was guarding Allen Iverson, we'd have an issue. Like you would obviously notice something's wrong with that. And so, um, especially when you're talking about like the highest end of athletics, I work with a lot of pitchers. And so like, it's not a normal human thing to throw a ball 90 miles an hour. Like that's just not supposed to happen. And so they get into positions that are not ideal. That's going to happen all the time. Um, but if they're stuck in those positions for the other, you know, 22 hours a day, that's where pain starts to set in. That's where, that's where things start to break down. You start looking at issues, they start having symptoms. And so you know, I, I want them to be able to get into positions that allows them to put the most velocity on the ball or the most spin on the ball or whatever it is. But I also want them to be able to kind of cool off when they're when they're not doing that. And so that's where a lot of these resources come in is that, yeah, I want performance numbers to go up. And I think generally across the board, they do. I don't think health and performance are that far apart. Um, but I want people to be able to recover when they're when they're done with their workout or when they're done with their sport. Um, rather than being stuck in those comp- those compensatory positions all the time. With uh, the squatting then, would you, this is probably, this is like super general question, but would you ever squat someone with their feet flat on the floor then? Like versus yeah, using a slap I have plenty of people that I do. Like I have, I have athletes right now and, and I don't want to like maybe bucket everybody in the same bucket, but you know, a lot of the taller, like, like female volleyball players a lot, um, like I don't necessarily want them to be a very vertical squatter in a lot of ways. Um, like they are people who in general, like if we're looking at this pylon shape, have a narrower shoulder and a wider hip. And so uh, when you have a thorax shape like that, it tends to not, you know, you tend to not be able to overcome gravity in a lot of situations very, very well, because things are always being, you know, more acceptable to go downward. Um, and so when you've got somebody like that, like, I tend to put them in positions a lot of the times that won't allow them very much depth on a squad. It won't allow them very much vertical displacement because they are already just based on a shape and based on kind of a, from a strategic standpoint, they're not very well adapted to come back out of the bottom of something like that. Um, Getting them down there is relatively easy, but being being able to reverse that, um, especially when you're looking at like vertical jump stuff or with any type of force, it's very, very difficult to get them to come back out of that with, with, quality. Um, some of that is, is going to be like general strength qualities or, or general force output that, that you need to work on. Um, but for the most part, like they've got this shape that is so biased in, towards the ground um, and, and kind of like melting toward the floor that, that, you know, putting them in a position that makes that easier is not always the best option. Hmm. That's interesting. I've never thought about it that way before. I, I mean, so a volleyball player, I think a visual that might help people who don't have the, obviously just listening on audio, sometimes describing these things. Uh, I like, so it was, uh, I think at Pat Davidson's clinic, they were, uh, the rethinking the big patterns I went to a few years ago, they were thinking of it in terms of the opposite of that would be suit the Superman type shape, like a V uh, or like Dwight Howard, you know, obviously there's probably a lot of connotations there with the, this, like a similar shape, like super wide shoulders and then a narrow waist where, when they're jumping or squatting, all that fluid goes down and it's real narrow. So it's really easy for it to bounce back up. 
But if you're the opposite and you have narrow shoulders and a wider hips, then that fluid will go down. It just can't, doesn't get quite the trampoline. Like my thinking would be, well, don't you want to make that better? Like, don't you want to try to make it more of a trampoline, right? If you want them to jump higher, that's my thought process. I I understand where you're coming from 100%, but I'm also trying to, this is a moment for me where I'm kind of like, you know, learning something new and I'm trying to think about how I would have done it in the past. So why, I mean, I know they're not good at it, but if they want to, if the volleyball player or something, they want to jump higher or they want to be able to, I guess you could say level change better. Why would you not do something like that? Right. Um, so there's some layers to this that, that we'll kind of get into as we, as we go through this. But um, in general, when you, when you're talking about like a descending pelvic diaphragm, you've got a very, very open inlet. So it's very bowl shaped at your, at your pelvis. So things are being accepted down there. Um, it makes room for all your guts to kind of fall down into your, into your pelvic floor. Um, and, and for you to be, you know, a little bit more, um, from a posterior standpoint, at least a little bit more relaxed and allowing that, that musculature to turn off and, and really accept the forces going down. Um, as soon as that reverses, so as soon as I need to be able to create force and I need to be able to come up out of the bottom, you lose all of that. So it is, it's going to be pure kind of from a, from a sacral standpoint, pure nutation. So the sacrum is dumping forward. Um, tibial angle will steepen. Um, and so you start to get, you know, anterior translation to the tibia and they will immediately kind of close and clamp down that, that pelvic inlet to, to redirect stuff up. Um, and so feet like without giving them resources and, and, and like providing constraints to do that, they, they're generally unable to do that. And so that's where like, putting them in the position that that doesn't allow them much descent will be the position that allows them ascent. You have to kind of trust that, um, you know, you giving them that position while they go down isn't going to take away from their ability to do that position when they go down, but you're trying to make that transition from this bowl shape to, you know, squeezing out a tube of toothpaste very, very quickly. And so by putting them in the position right off the bat, like, I, I kind of poo-pooed on like hack squats for a long time. And right now, like I probably have three or four girls that do hack squats really, really well. So the mm. bar is behind their back and it's putting them forward initially. Um, and so I don't allow them all the descent of their pelvic floor that they would generally have. They'll still get that because they're gaining depth and it is their overall bias. But I give them a shorter excursion on the way down. So the pelvic, the, the pelvic diaphragm in, in this thing isn't going to descend quite as far as it would, or maybe it stays a little bit more taut than it normally would, but you don't give them kind of the, the, the time or the ability to relax in that position. Then you ask them to turn it around quickly and go back up. So it's kind of like, you know, you asked, you asked the question about like, shouldn't we be allowing them to go down? And then you want them to be able to rebound. And the fact is like the rebound is a completely different position than the going down portion is. And Mm -hmm. so you want them to be able to take them or for them to be able to transition out of that just more quickly. That, okay. That, that makes sense to me. It's just something that you're, I mean, it's just like training someone's weakness, right? You, you don't want to like, I like the idea of training someone's weakness, but if they're training it and their core reactivity is not improving, then you're not helping them. And I'd imagine that, putting them in such a disadvantageous position for their physiology, it's just going to, maybe they'll get a little better at it, but imagine they'd have to compensate to get better at it. You know, like they're not going to do it the same mechanism, maybe that someone who is real narrow, like at the bottom would, I don't know, just kind of thinking out loud. Yeah. 
I think the thing that I trust most often on that is that like their shape is, is going to be their default all the time. And so, um, you know, I can't ever, I don't know that I'll ever be able to like prove the efficacy or like that, that, you know, my way of doing this is going to be the quickest way to get a result. But I think that, um, you know, if someone can't pressurize their thorax and you put them in a position to pressurize it before they even start going down, it usually has a good, good benefit on that end because they're never like, you're never going to push them all the, all the way to the other end of the spectrum on that. Like they, they probably won't be people that, you know, live for 24 hours a day in this very, very compressive state, unless they add a ton of muscle mass or you've got, you know, external pressure that you're adding on to them through, through weight gain and stuff like that. So, um, well, I understand what you're saying about, about, you know, them being able to use that transition. That's kind of where, where you have to be creative as a coach and be able to like slide the scale and, and use the constraints to your advantage to be able to get that kind of thing. So things like band assistance are going, are going to help a great deal in that. So maybe you're not taking away the load, but maybe you allow them to de-weight at the bottom where it's going to be like, or you allow them to de-weight as they're going down so that it, it creates an environment where they're able to make that turn around at the pelvic floor more quickly. So, so there's less constraint that they have to deal with down there. Um, and, and so there's just a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of ways to play around with something like that to, to hopefully make it as, as, you know, relative or relevant for the individual that you're working with. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about uh, hypnosis and mental training for athletes. Uh, while talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, that's one of those things, too, where maybe like just like the false step, right? Like the athlete is going to self-organize. Sometimes they even feel like give them a, a bar and some ability, of idea of how to squat is they're going to squat to their strengths or their shape. Like you said, right. they'll default to their shapes. And it, I mean, like just that idea, like what you would see out of someone's standing vertical jump, for example, if someone's shape allows it, they'll probably maybe get deeper into that jump and dig deeper. But someone who doesn't have the shape for it, if you... Like, and this is me, like every time if I, and I don't, I'm, I'm definitely like a wide shoulder to narrow hip type person, but I also don't do very well digging down too far. I, I'm very like bouncy. I was a high jumper, like bouncy type mm -hmm. person. So if I try to get down there far, it just doesn't work out very well for me, no matter what I kind of do there. So I, that just makes me think of like what you see in vertical jumps. Like if I just had my group do, but standing vertical and videoed them from the side, I, that would be very telling of what might be their optimal squat then on some level. Absolutely. So, so I'll give you a good example of this. Like I am, I am shaped a lot like you. So I'm a really wide shoulder, very narrow hip. Um, I have a wide infrasternal angle. So that, that tells you kind of right off the bat, just from a shape standpoint that I'm not going to be the best squatter in terms of vertical displacement. Um, and so when you look at my vertical jump, 
um, I'm what a lot of people would consider like a back jumper. Like my, mm-hmm. I use a lot of arm swing and my chest will basically go down to my knees and then I reverse out of that very, very quickly. So, um, while I don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, displacement in my pelvis, um, I am able to shove as much as I can use that, that strategy to shove as much pressure down in my pelvis. And I'm able to reverse out of that really quickly. When you look at, if we use that female volleyball player, again, um, you know, someone who's a little bit narrower up top and a little bit wider at the bottom, the thing that we see a lot and we correlate with this is like knee valgus, right? Like their knees will clap together. And like, obviously there are, deg- there are varying degrees of that that are kind of going to kind of be acceptable for, for each person that you work with. So I don't think for someone like that, you're ever probably going to take that away as a strategy. But I do think there are like, there are obviously times when you see it and you're like, that looked terrible. And there are times mm-hmm. when they get in and out of it really quickly. And you're like, that's probably okay. Um, that's a strategy though. That That's, that's them being able to close down uh, or open, I guess, if you look at it from top to bottom, being able to open the pelvic outlet, being able to close down the pelvic inlet, it's IR happening there. So they're, they're creating compression. They're trying to use that as a strategy to help reverse things back up off the pelvic floor once they get to the bottom. So, um, is it necessarily a bad thing? I don't know that it's, uh, it's on like inherently a bad thing. Obviously when it, when it has injury related to it, that's where we start to worry about that thing. So, um, yeah, they're all like, there are going to be very, very different strategies based on, based on what you're looking for or what you're looking at in, in a jump that will relate to a squat. Because a lot of the times, you know, you put a barbell in someone's hands or on someone's back that looks like that shape. Um, they're going to follow that pattern also because they have to be able to, to get themselves out of the bottom of the movement. Yeah. So in looking at, so if I have a team in and I'm watching their standing verticals from the side and I'm learning some things about them from, from that. Um, and I, I don't know, I just feel like there's so many, I don't want to make this question too complicated because I think there's just so much complexity and we can get lost in it. I, I will get lost in it and I can only take so many notes. I mean, cause I think about too myself, like I, I, I'm like the wide scenario, but I'm a, I'm a narrow ISA like hundred percent. And I, I mean, I know I can get into a deep squat easily. I just don't have any power down there. And I've always been like a foot connect. So maybe it's like my mechanism that I would not bend very much is different than what you were using as a wide ISA. I don't know. Um, but my thought is, uh, if we're looking at ideal squat depths for athletes on some level, I mean, I think about Justin Moore and Mike Camperini who are on the podcast and talking about how Justin had a lot of injury issues and Mike was helping him using a lot of the Bill Hartman ideas and... It, Justin needed to yield more like he needed to get down into a squat more and they were doing a ton of like heels elevate or slant board like doing oscillating catches with kettlebells and all that kind of stuff um, right. and so they were trying to get him down deeper and so I'm just thinking what's different with him I mean again he's probably a little bit more wide to narrow up top too like what's different with him who needs to get down deeper in a squat versus a like you're saying a volleyball player who might have the wider hips and narrower shoulders and things like that Right. So for Justin and, you know, I've seen a lot of his stuff too. And obviously I've worked with Campo in the past. So, so I, I know like a lot of what they're doing right now. And for Justin, it's, it's, there's kind of a twofold to this. Like he is someone who it was so output driven from what I understand for so long that like, you know, he played football and he did all those things and, and he's been a, you know, kind of a lifelong weightlifter and, and a lot of that's been heavy. And so, um, 
Justin is at kind of from, from what I understand, like a weird transition point where um, he needs to be able to accept load a little bit more, like I'll call it gracefully, but he needs to be able to allow that, allow load to help him descend. But he also like, he very much needs the load to push him down into certain positions. Um, So when he's so think like in terms of force production, he's so vertically driven, um, compressive, he's pushing away from the ground all the time that, that to be able to, to have any depth from a health standpoint from him, he has to be pushed down into a lot of these positions or he has to drop down into them. Um, Or he has to, you know, when you talk about the, the, you know, like oscillatory stuff, he has to, he has to kind of fall into the positions and and then be able to recapture uh, a position at the bottom. So we, I think Campo's goal with a lot of that stuff is, is getting him to an early position, which is where he's going to be at the bottom of the squat for the, for the volleyball players that I work with, they have absolutely no trouble getting to the bottom of the squat. Like I can put them no slant, give them a kettlebell in their hands and they will drop straight to the bottom. The issue is the turnaround out of the bottom to get back up to the top. Mm. So, you know, I've had, I've had some volleyball players that I work with for four years now. Um, I have not ever to this point trained them uh, for any like substantial length of time to get to the bottom of a, of a, goblet squat and they can still do it um like they they have never lost that ability with four years of training age under them at the same time i've given them a lot of like reference points to hit in the bottom of a squat so whether we're going down to a box or whether we're using a band which is a little bit of a softer stop on something like that um i give them a reference point to feel where i would like them to end at, and then i see how quickly they can redirect back up so it's a band you know, I might set the band at parallel uh, squat depth for them. They go down, they, they feel the band on the back of their legs and they reverse up as quickly as possible. And I'm looking for those first couple of inches to be as dynamic as it can be out of the bottom. Um, I think that giving them that constraint gives them like it raises the basement or it raises the floor up a little bit for them so that now they're not so predisposed towards over dropping in a jump over sinking into the ground on certain things, letting like where Justin has to allow gravity to do its job and like allow it to him to relax enough to get pulled to the bottom. I want them to have the opposite. I want them to have the ability to, to put on the brakes, say, this is as low as I'm going to go and to be able to reverse back out of that with, with some sort of force production. So um, those are, you know, those are kind of two pretty extreme examples. A lot of people don't live on the ends like that. Um, but, but you kind of have to measure like, like, where are they at either based on health or performance or, or a combination of both? Like, where do we need to get them to? And then how do we manage those kind of ebbs and flows of, you know, this month, are we going to maybe limit you a little bit more and focus on speed on the way up? Or do I want you to be able to, to have a longer yielding phase on the way down and, and make that transition more? Yeah, that makes sense. Because as soon as so from my mind, the way I'm kind of putting this together is, well, it's I think it's kind of funny, like a lot of times, I think, um, I know, I've definitely drifted away from kind of the one RM squat day type type thing. But if you're in a weight room where you're seeing that that's the day that's fun to watch, because you get to see everyone's major compensations coming out. And you see a lot of squat mornings and, and hip shifts and all that stuff. And, 
it <laughs> makes sense to me that if a player like that, and I'm sure we've all seen it, is trying to produce a lot of power out of the bottom, it just would have to be a squat morning on some level. You would see that instant rise of the hips come up if they're trying to be strong out of there. And then you think to yourself, well, why am I why am I even working down here on this intensity level then? And then, like you said, you're putting the band, you're fine. I think that's really cool. Like finding the level you can drop. Cause I think a lot of athletes will self-organize it. Like if the coach isn't a stickler on depth, they'll just kind of be like, yeah, this feels good. I can reverse it out of here. Like you'll, right. you'll see that a lot when people aren't like coaching depth. So it's, it's a cool way to at least put like a level of like, it's like a bar speed tracker. It's like, Hey, this is, you should be going this far down. This is your zone. As soon as you hit this, you're good. And, I think on some level, even I, um, like, I remember when I was in college, I, my sophomore year, I, it's amazing how much of my own training I was allowed to do. And I was kind of a brat with it, but like my, I was already like a kind of a, probably an early stance favored per, favoring person and doing a lot of like Olympic lifts and stuff. Cause I was thinking about all this supposed transfer. And then I went on to have a terrible, like first few meets and just sucked supremely. And then my squat was horrible. That I mean, absolutely horrendous, my parallel squat. So the next year, my junior year, I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I need to get my squat up. And I just, I remember thinking about the way my body wanted to squat that felt good, which was knees way forward, knees internally rotating a little bit, like a lot of ball of the foot pressure. It's almost as if I was self-selecting to get more into the ball of the foot into late stance or something like that. And I still, but then I remember like what felt the best. I could only do that with so heavy a weight, the deep. And then once I transitioned a box that was about, I don't know, 16 inches off the ground, like that was awesome. And it's just like feeling what felt good and not just, but there had to be a box or I couldn't like, and then you're like, you have two minds. You're thinking of how far do I go down? Then when does it feel good to go back up? Like that kind of thing. So I just think that's, it, it makes good sense. I just love the way you're regulating that and like looking at the needs of different athletes there. Yeah, no, you make a really interesting point because, um, you know, I think a lot of the times that we get so like our industry is really, really poor in the fact that like we try to standardize exercises across the board for everybody. So like when you read a piece of research and it references a squat, um, that could mean a thousand Mm -hmm. different things for a lot of different people. So like a lot of the kids that come in the weight room that have any type of training experience already, they assume right off the bat that, that, you know, kind of the ass to grass motto is, is what they need to be doing. And while there's probably a, you know, a, a sect of people that I work with that that is what I would prefer them going towards or like we're moving towards that goal. There's a, there's a lot of people that I am, I am a little bit more, and I hate the, the phrase sport specific, but like, if we're going back to volleyball or basketball in a lot of cases too, like I kind of only want them going to a depth that I think is like, like relevant for force production and sport. Um, you know, I'm not sure when I've got a shape that is so biased towards sitting to the ground. Um, I don't like to feed that with a lot of other, like, like a, a lot of activity that drives them towards that. I like them to be able to, have some say in like, if we look at this in a runway example, like I want them to be able to say, okay, this is where I'm stopping this time. And I'm not going to go any further than that. Even though I have access to go the entire runway, like this is it, or this is where I'm going to be able to, because if you think about it, like, if we go back to the squad example and you're looking at like, what's going to provide me the most amount of force production out of the bottom, it's going to be that 90 degrees of hip flexion window, because that puts me in the most amount of IR. 
And so if we can use that to their advantage and allow them to have some, some, you know, speed out of that position, then it probably has a better transfer than if I was to send them all the way to the bottom and then try to have them push all the way back up out of a position that is very, very hard to move load through. So the thing that gets, that gets equated in this a lot is like looking at the bottom of like a clean for, for like competitive Olympic lifting. And they're saying, Oh, like they're in early because they're sitting on their heels. And then you look at the angle of the femur and their femurs are so internally rotated at the bottom that, that if they did not have that, they would literally blow out the bottom of their Mm -hmm. suit sitting to the ground like that. So they, and they would never get the weight back up. So like there are going to be strategies to accomplish a task. And I want to always kind of, uh, you know, keep that in the back of my mind when I'm prescribing something, especially when I'm, when I have a very clear goal from a sports standpoint. Um, but, but I want to be, you know, as selective with the people that I work with in terms of getting them better, um, or, you know, taking them out of what they spend a majority of their life in, I think, like you said, like, like kind of balancing their training, the negatives on that. Cool. Uh, yeah, with the Olympic lifters too, then. So with the heel down, but the knees way forward and tibias internally rotated, that's more of a mid stance than a heels thing then, isn't it? Like, Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, they are at essentially like max propulsions this moment in the middle of that. And as soon as they reverse this back out there and kind of that max repulsive stage. Cool. Um, I'm always, I mentioned this actually with the Connor Harris show and I'm, I'm so fascinated with like the Marvin Marinovich training system, Marvin Gary Marinovich, and then, um, Gavin McMillan sports science lab. They use the, these ideas where it's a lot of like, if you've seen, it's like super cats and like, they have the little like hard balance discs for the feet. But if you watch people squatting and doing that training, and also they'll do it like out of the slant board where it's there on the balls of the feet. But I don't think I've ever seen someone get to a bilateral parallel squat position in that training. I mean, maybe it happens or maybe they're on their back when it happens, but it's almost all seems like it's just, I have this machine, the super cat, and it's all whatever my ideal maximal propulsion is, which is usually like a half squat or a third of a squat for a lot of people. And it's almost this, I, I've, I've gotten to this point in my training where I think, I, I'm really wanting to learn like all this this more technical stuff, but I also think that when you give the body a situation where it gets to self-select, there's so much gold in that too. Like that's the one that doesn't require as much like technical nuance. It's like here's a super cat, your feet are on these discs that lets you pick your portion of stance and rotation that you want, and just have at it, you know. <laughs> and and right. it's just to me, I don't know. There's just so much. Um, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to find that balance where it's like, like the majority of my work is the self-selecting and then just try to go in technically when I know that it's like what's needed. And that's where I'm trying to get to. Um, right. No, I'm on the same boat. I tried to like, uh, I set up, um, I, I try to select or like, you know, I'm, I'm big about right now, at least like kind of, I don't think I ever invent exercises, but like, like kind of one-offing exercises for each individual person to make them like as, as specific to that person's needs as possible. And so a lot of the times, like I just, I try to not say anything, like I'll just let them, I'll use a constraint. I will let them kind of feel out the exercise. And I try to step back and say, you know, uh, in my mind, when I, when I put this exercise together, I had, you know, one, two, three things of intent that I want, that I want to look for while they're doing this. And as long as those things are being achieved, um, and I think they're, you know, at a high quality or whatever variables that I'm looking at on that, then like, let them do what they do for the rest of the time. Like the, the training is not the end goal. Like nobody that I work with, uh, wants to be 
you know, a better weightlifter necessarily. Like they want to be like, the, they see the value in that, but also like they want to get better at their sport or they want to get, you know, better in life, whatever they're doing outside of the gym. So um, I try not to be too overbearing or too, you know, I hate like queuing intraset. I think that's the worst thing mm-hmm. ever. Um, I think that if you, if you find yourself doing that a lot, it's like, you got to be able to take a step back and, and let them make some mistakes or they're just going to get bombarded with stuff. Yeah. I think just even the level of just what, what you said with shapes, like just watching people jump and almost do self-selected like technique squats for a few weeks and just then think about how their shape is driving that. I think we all would learn so much, you know, versus yeah. day one, everyone squat. This is how everyone's squatting. Like I've seen people, I've seen coaches use a medicine ball for, you know, for athletes, oh, you got to hit your butt to the medicine ball because otherwise you're, you're being soft and not going down far enough. <laughs> and I've seen some crazy stuff surface with that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. is it's funny. Um, so with, all right. So I'm very hung up on these volleyball players, but I, I just have a few more questions. And so you had said like a hack squat for that type of person would like, a um, the thing I have the, the no equipment or very little equipment too would be like, a like a single leg physio ball wall squat where you have your a physio ball between your back and the wall. And then you're just like leg out in front a little bit doing like a single leg drop down, like that kind of thing. Um, yeah. that would work as well where they're not, I mean, it's just not requiring the the opening of the pelvic floor. It's not dealing with that as much basically. Right. The, the thing you're looking for on something like that, and it's a, it's a really easy indicator for most people is, is the shin angle. So wherever like the shin angle, and these are really cool iterations and, and Bill talks a lot about this stuff, um, kind of across the board with people, but, um, the really cool thing about, about the tibia and the sacrum is they actually move together. So when you have, um, when you have a, a shin that starts to, to have that anterior translation or starts to drift over the toe, um, the same thing is happening with the sacrum. So the sacrum is actually tilting forward um, into nutation. And so at that point, you, you can kind of make the connection that, that uh, you know, forces being directed a little bit more forward um things aren't being shoved down quite the same way in, in the pelvis and that the the pelvic inlet is going to be a little bit more closed off for business at that point so um those are you know things that are proven through gate those are things that that are happening at the same time and so um those are really really helpful cues when you're looking at like prescribing an exercise for someone that's that's what can be so cool about like doing a split squat in a bunch of different ways like if you're rear foot elevated on a split squat or you're in more of like a Bulgarian style, the, the center of mass is going to be shifted forward. So you're going to automatically from the top basically have that anterior translation. Um, or so you're going to be in more of an IR bias. You're going to be in more of a force production bias. But at the same time, if I have somebody who's already in that stance walking in the room, I can elevate their front foot on a box or I can even put them on a heel elevation at that point. And then it keeps them very, very vertical on that tibia. So if I'm worried more about vertical displacement uh, at the pelvis, then, then I can kind of set up the same exercise to do two things. And even I have people that are, you know, they're a little bit, you know, more forward anteriorly oriented on the left side than they are on the right side or vice versa. And so I can set up an exercise to shift them back on the left side with a split squat and then just have them step over the bar, over the box to, to push them forward on the right side. So um, yeah, there are, there's, you know, so many like cool ways now to, to kind of accomplish the same task and make sure that very easy changes between things are actually like providing people with a lot of context for, for how their body moves. As soon as you, uh, get from like bilateral to single leg, I mean, so much changes, right? Like, 
it seems like um, I guess, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to ask here, but I feel like uh, with athletes who maybe this is what I'm trying to ask because I've thought about this a lot is when we talk about the pressure and the pelvis and the sacrum and stuff like that. Um, how much changes when we go to a single leg versus a double leg in the sense of it's only it's the leg is just on one side and maybe are we dealing with pressure the same way like the guts descending and rebounding back up like those kind of things are your goals different maybe is what i'm trying to ask when you go from a double to a single leg and we're an athlete. absolutely cool absolutely um so so there is no like we're still going to carry biases when you're looking at something bilateral so like there's still going to be one leg uh you know in most cases that is probably a little bit more uh, bias towards force production on one side is going to be a little bit more accepting of that, but the, the variance that you're going to get the, at the pelvis is very, very slim. So, um, you know, you are basically, so sacrum is going to face different directions and that's going to tell you kind of what phase of gate you're in. If the sacrum is facing forward, which it is in all bilateral work, right? Like you're not going to be, um, you don't have one side forward. So you're not, you know, you don't have an open hip side and a closed hip side. Essentially you have two forward facing hips. Um, if sacrum's facing forward, you're in middle, like there is no kind of, uh, if, and, or, but about something like that, like that is where your bias is going to be. And that's why you can transition through these phases in a squat with your, with your sacrum facing forward. But, um, the kind of, uh, innate, from the ground up way that we would do a squat with no heel elevation is going to put you in a middle stance right from the get go. As soon as you put a foot forward and you put a foot back though, like let's say I have my right leg back and my left foot forward. Um, in that case with my left foot forward, you are basically, you have an open hip side now to my right and sacrum is going to face that side. And depending on where my center of mass is, um, that's going to tell me if I'm late or early on the front leg and the back leg or, or somewhere in the middle. Um, so when my, when my center of mass is behind the lead leg, so my left foot's forward center of mass is behind the lead. Let's say if I'm in gate, I'm at heel strike on something like that. Um, tibia is still very vertical. That is early propulsion. My, my sacrum is facing away from the front leg. It's starting to transition and, and face towards the front leg. Um, but, but that heel strike goes through. My other leg starts to catch up with that leg. So my center of mass starts to push over the foot that, that landed in heel contact first. That puts me in middle. Sacrum is facing forward. And then as I transition forward again from that, the sacrum starts to face away from the lead leg again. So now my swing leg is going forward. I've transitioned, you know, onto my midfoot on the support leg. That early foot or the swing leg is going into early now because sacrum isn't facing it. And sacrum is facing the back leg now, which was my, my original heel strike leg. And so you go through all of these phases and you can kind of, as a, as a coach, you can pick what phases you're isolating based on how you shift their weight, where you put a kettlebell, whether you elevate a front foot or a back foot. You know, if you have, I've done a lot of stuff lately where it's like shifting. So maybe as I start to descend in my, in my split squat, I'll have them shift forward so the weights over that front foot a little, a little bit, but as they come back up, they're going to push themselves back. So they're really, really you know, either more heel heavy on the front side or, or a little bit more weight mm. shifted towards the back in general. So I know that example is really hard to, I'm sure for some of the people that are listening, it's really hard to follow, but you know, essentially you, you go through all of these phases and, and you're going to be, you know, from sport or from whatever other activities you do, you're going to be biased towards, you know, spending more time in certain positions and other positions. Um, but the goal from like a training standpoint for me, at least is to have, you know, really, really smooth, fluid, usually quick transitions between all of these things. 
Um, a lot of times, you know, you don't want them spending too much time in any one position. Obviously you've come from a track background. So like, I don't know if, if, if you're sprinting, if you, if you've got some got somebody in hundred meters, you probably don't ever want them touching an early propulsive position where they have heel contact. It's too short of a runway. Um, they're, you know, they're going to kind of dissipate forces too much and they're going to lose some of that drive that, that propels them forward. Um, but in a lot of other sports, when you, when you have change of direction, especially like those positions are important to be able to, to key on and train and make sure that they have access to, because that's kind of, you know, without using the phrase injury prevention too much, that's a lot of like what goes into to being able to reduce the likelihood that something like that happens. Cool. Uh, with the phases too, I, I wanted to get to this too before the end of our talk today. And you said this all the way at the beginning. I, I do like that by with the single leg. I found myself naturally thinking about it. Like if someone's just doing a step up on a box, for example, I like the idea of at the top them getting some like feeling that wh- whatever external rotation is happening, feeling kind of more their heel or the outside edge of their foot versus people who would do a single leg lift and just kind of be stuck in the internal the whole time like i like athletes feeling the reciprocity of it i think that's what you were getting at weren't you with like the yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely uh yeah so with the okay so with the the late stance and mid stance and you mentioned what stance they're in when they dunk and that's like all right yeah you're speaking my language i mean this whole thing has been really intriguing to me but that's like something that helps me to make more connections and i think about that a lot with how people get up off the ground so Maybe that's a little could be a little segue to the last portion of our conversation today um, is mid stance and late stance and, and transitioning across. But could you explain a little bit about what you're looking for on the level of the foot and the stances early, mid, late when an athlete is jumping or dunking? Right. So so I think, uh, you know, this is probably the easiest to look at when you're when you're talking about like a two foot jumper. So um, if, if you're making a transition forward into you know, your gather step, like the one, two step that you go up to with a jump, um, as you transition forward. So like momentum is, is already driving you forward. You've made that step. So neither feet are touching the ground right now. And then all of a sudden you have ground contact as you drift and, and it's with heel usually first. So you're having them go through this really should be rather brief, but really, really necessary part of, of the gate cycle to get them to lift off the ground. So, um, maybe this is a little bit too in depth, but if you look at like the typical basketball athlete, a lot of them are, are very output driven. They're not very input driven. So the connective tissue that you're working with or, or their bias in general is usually a little bit more rigid and a little bit more, uh, you know, IR output based They're they're springy people. Um, the issue with that is they don't use, they don't always use, um, you know, a connective tissue strategy that's going to be the most beneficial for them from a health standpoint, and usually also beneficial for them in, in a performance standpoint. So that heel hits, they should in some way, um, if we're in an ideal situation, be having a, a yielding, like posterior yielding connective tissue action, which means that like a rubber band it gets a little bit longer. So all of their connective tissue is going to lengthen a little bit that is going to store energy for them. So that is, that is energy that is going to be stored when that becomes an overcoming contraction and that, that tissue gets shortened again and is able to release some energy to go off the ground with. So that early position is really, really important to get into for athletes who are jumping because it gives them that split second window of enough, enough, you know, yield and enough, uh, kind of expansion quality to, to gain that energy 
uh, not absorption, but um, energy kind of capture before they're going to turn that around. So heels coming into contact with the ground, center of mass is still behind the foot. They're transitioning forward. And so as they start to transition forward, they're moving more towards IR. So the center of mass is transitioning forward over the foot. As soon as heel breaks, or actually right before heel breaks, they hit a point called max propulsion. So max propulsion is zero velocity. That's, you know, usually when you're looking at a jump, you can kind of uh, correlate it with the amortization phase. So, so they're not going down anymore, but they're also not going up at that point. And you literally can't even capture it on film. It's so it's such a short period of time. Um, but that is max IR that is max force production. Um, that is going to be, yeah, you know, the moment where they're the slowest, but they're also generating the most, the most force on the ground at that point. And then they use that to go forward. So, at that point, heel breaks the ground and every transition from that point until their toe comes off the ground, actually through the toe coming off the ground is going to be ER. So in order for them to display the velocity and the force production that they just created in that one instance on the ground, they need to be able to reorient back into ER. So like we talked about at the beginning, ER is kind of this fluidity of movement. It's the ability for, you know, momentum to travel through a muscle. So if you think about it from, from a, like a, hydrodynamic standpoint um you know if you throw a pebble into to a, a pond it has ripples that go out and so that's the same thing that's happening with momentum through the muscle when you've created that force and so if the energy if, if the muscle is too tense and the connective tissue is too tense to allow that wave of momentum to move through then they're going to dampen and they're they're that first of all the force has to go through something else because it doesn't just go away right like we know how energy is stored and released so it doesn't just go away. So more than likely it's going to go through a path of least resistance, which I mean, we're talking knee injuries out the wazoo. So that, that's something that's very, very kind of pertinent right now, but um, you know, it has to go through something. And so you want to allow the tissue time to, to relax and time to, to reorient, or they have the capacity to reorient to allow that, that momentum to start to lift them off the ground. So um you know, people, I think uh, a while back, I, I read some stuff about like how long is an athlete's runway for push and like, where should it be at? And the truth is like, in my opinion, it should be that split second brief moment is where max force production is. And the rest of it has to kind of allow for that velocity and that force to be demonstrated or else you're kind of holding yourself back. You've, you've created a parachute that's going to keep you off the ground or it's going to slow you down because you're not allowing the force that you just generated in that one second to be demonstrated. And you're also over pushing through a lot of those qualities. So as they continue to transition forward, they leave the ground, toe comes off. Those are all ER movements. And it continues to be ER when they're in the air because they have nothing to push off of at that point or to create compression with. Do you think with that, I have another question for the foot, but I, I think about this is, and I saw this in um, that old, you sport material. And I don't remember what article it was or what book it was. Uh, the guy whoever wrote that book was saying that when you like you like a, think of a vertimax uh like they were talking about drops a depth jump where they had bands around the athletes um hips and then the bands were stretched to the ground and people put their feet on the bands and the athletes stepped off and they would the the bands would shoot them down faster maybe trick their vestibular system i don't know i always wondered why you couldn't just do a higher box but i get it i did like that training uh but they said that the athletes have to release at the moment you hit the ground 
the ath- the people or partners have to let their foots off the bands, their foots, their feet out the bands. Because if they didn't, and it was just like a vertimax, then it makes the movement too muscular on the way up was the way it was described. And I was, I'm just thinking about this balance of IR 0.0 or whatever it is, where there's no velocity. And then everything beyond that, you know, whatever fraction of a second it is, it's all unloading. It's all ERing. So if I resisted, if I used band resistance for a jump, I would perhaps be in danger of almost prolonging the IR phase or I don't know. Like, does that make sense? Or do you have thoughts on that? You are, you are exactly right. And so I'm glad you brought that up because this has been kind of like a, a, not necessarily a point of contention, but there are a lot of like different camps on stuff like this. And like, there are a lot of ways, like we talked about earlier, to like skin a cat. So you can do a lot of things that are going to create that that like brief IR moment to be as forceful as possible. And there are a lot of things to to make that duration last way too long. And the fact is that when you when you resist someone, there's a couple levels to that. But but not only are you making their force runway much longer than it should be because they this should be something that allows them to to reorient when they get off the ground you're causing them to push until toe is off. That's one thing. Bands also are another thing. So people just like equate bands with every other type of resistance. And the fact is it's not. So bands are the only thing that we work with in the gym regularly that are like hyper gravity, the further you get away from the anchor point for the band. So the band is not getting lighter as you're going off as you should be, as you should be getting like more and more relaxed as you're leaving the ground on the jump it's actually causing you to get tenser because the, the, the load on you is increasing centimeter by centimeter as you continue to stretch that band. So it's causing, it's like so far away from what it should be allowing you to do because the band tension is the greatest at the point where it should be, you should be the most relaxed. You should be the less compressive. Um, at the same time, you look at like landing from something like that. And for people who don't, interact with the ground well it's going to hyper pull you back into the ground at the same time so like it's it's killing you not killing you that's a little dramatic um it is undoing a lot of that stuff on both ends like it's it's pulling people into the ground who are already not good at like handling gravity well and resisting kind of all of the ascent that you should be doing when you're when you're leaving the ground like that so I don't do that stuff with, with, I do some like static stuff where I'll have them hold positions and the bands pull down on them because I, I, you know, I want them to hold a certain hand position or something like that. But, but from a dynamic quality standpoint, like I never do stuff that should be fast with bands because it just slows them down. Same thing with a cut. So like band resisted cutting or, you know, sprinting and stuff like that, like you're causing them to have this longer runway. And there's probably like a small sect of athlete that, that need something like that because they're at such a high level that like maybe that's the only way that you get a stimulus to them is to have them do some dynamic stuff with some resistance to it. But outside of like that small window, stuff like that is just causing them to push for longer is slowing them down. Same thing with weightlifting. Like when you put a heavy, when you put a heavy barbell on your back and you have to grind out a squat, um, how do you think you're, how, how fast do you think you're recruiting a muscle with that? Like how fastly or, or, or how quickly fastly now I'm doing How quickly are you going to be able to, to do that once the bar comes off your back? Like professional weightlifters don't have a time constraint in the exercise that they're doing. Like there's no, if you pull a barbell off the ground in a deadlift and it takes you five minutes to get to the top, 
the, the rep still counts when you're looking at powerlifting. Like for my kids, you know, it, it's not the same thing when they're jumping off the ground, like the slower it is, the, the worse it's going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. So I've thought about that with the bands too. I used to, I used to be really intrigued with bands in my early twenties and I saw some study. I, I don't know if it came out of Michigan state or I don't know where, where, where it was, but they basically had like a banded group and not banded group. I don't know what the resistance was, but it turned out like the was like the banded group got stronger, but they didn't, their dynamic outputs were no better, or maybe they were even a little worse or something like that. And it's like when our main emphasis is, oh, if athletes just get stronger, quote air quotes, that'll just make it all great. And it's like, well, what's the mechanism that you're getting stronger? You know, uh, anyways, right. uh, I do want to keep this on the, the feet. I, I really like that. Like that really helps confirm and, and give me more information on what I've kind of thought. And then especially appreciate hearing that from a joint, that, that joint loading and unloading perspective. Um, but with the, so with someone dunking and the foot, and maybe I'll just say this real quick. I think about like a single leg jump sometimes too. And what you said with there needs to be like uh, a stretch, like a quick stretching of the posterior chain. I think of like the heel bone, you can't really jump off one leg well without at least some heel contact. Like you need to get to the forefoot relatively quickly, but there has to be some, and I, I feel like people and high jump, which is my event or one of my things I did was you're running a curve. So you're going to get a crap ton of eversion but even people who go and jump and dunk off one leg a lot of times they run like a little arc of a, a movement and then there is that like that heel bone eversion that they get that rapid stretch and then they're going into the forefoot so i mean that's kind of similar to what you're talking about in a two-leg jump right absolutely yeah no you're 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 spot on with that i think that that is uh, again like this keeps all looping back to the beginning but like like you kind of let people figure out what works for them best. You see a lot of common themes across the board when, when you look at athletes do things that you ask them to do. So that's another thing is, is yeah, they'll, they'll kind of run that curve um, because it's going to give them a little bit more of the sensation that they're looking for from a, like a stretch shortening perspective. Yeah. I mean, one thing I started doing, I, I didn't continue it, but I found it interesting is when I had, um, I just was, I was playing like soccer with my, child we were uh my daughter might have been three at the time we we're just kicking the ball against the some garage door or something and i had minimal shoes on and just for fun i was just i don't know i had this idea in my head to like just take a couple steps and pop up into a jump without letting my heel i'm sure my heel hit the ground but like without letting my heel hit and i felt so like the, the amount of spring that i got off the ground feeling that was so like it was immense it felt really good like it felt like when i was younger and playing a lot of basketball and able to do it and I think as I got older, I just got more and more heel heavy, but I know that that wouldn't be like, if I was going to actually jump and dunk, that wouldn't be optimal either. But like, what I'm asking is what's the, cause I feel like maybe that was helpful because it just helped me get into late stance faster and, and without staying on my heel too long. What I'm asking is what's the balance? Like how do you said that, um, intermediate and advanced athletes can get into their forefoot better. They're more mid and late stance dominant. So could we close this out by you sharing a little bit about why you think that is and then how to find the, a good balance between early and late stance and whatever they're doing. Right. So, um, you know, to answer the first part of your question, if athletes like athletes across the board, sports in general are, are force output driven. Like there is usually some kind of task that, that has to be completed and it's, it's usually, you know, um, you know, despite the planes that we're working in or, or the surface that we're on, um, there's some output involved. So they're, they're trying to get something done quickly, or they're, they're trying to, you know, get beat somebody to a spot or whatever it is. And so when you have stuff, um, that is forward driven like that, um, 
and you live your life and you train like that. And, and, you know, life, not a whole lot of life in general goes backwards. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of things that we do throughout the day that takes us in reverse. And so when you kind of fall in those patterns all the time, and then you start looking at athletes that are, you know, a little bit advanced in their, in their sport age, and, and they've been doing those for years and, you know, now sports are year round for a lot of the people that I work with. And so, um, the, the common thread across all of those things is that it's sending you forward. Um, and so when that becomes kind of where you live on a daily basis, and then also that becomes your, your go-to for most task completion, you end up um, kind of living in that, that middle to late stance in a lot of ways. And so, um, you know, you look at, you know, the wear marks on some, some of the bottoms of the basketball guy's shoes and like, obviously like the toe box or usually like the medial aspect of the, the shoe is, is kind of gone. Um, depending on how broken in the shoes are. And um, there's a lot about that. That's very necessary. I think like some things that hold back a lot of the athletes that like, you know, I'm a very amateur athlete. Um, and while I'm pretty forward oriented, um, you know, it's not, it's not to the same degree or not to the same quality that a lot of the high end athletes that I work with are. So they're able to manage those better. They're able to usually like, you know, from a resiliency standpoint, they're able to, to compensate enough to, to distribute forces that, that they're creating and absorbing, um, to stay away from injury. But like, you see it a lot of times with, with athletes that are, that are hurt is, is, you know, they don't have the resources to kind of distribute force well, which happens a lot during the early phase. Um, and so that, that becomes an issue, uh, and the fact that they, it's not that they can't access it. Well, sometimes it is the fact that they can't access it at all. Like those positions, an early position isn't even available to them. Um, but when you look at like the middle to late stance, it's usually in my mind when I'm training somebody like that, it's like, do I need to bring them back at all? So like, if I do, if I need to get them to come back on the, on, you know, their, their heel at all, how far is that? And then how do I manage that from them? So a lot of my training kind of or assessment pieces at least evolves around a table test. And um, if I can tell that, you know, if, if standard shoulder internal rotation is going to be something like 70 or 90, I don't even know what the actual standard is, but in, in 40 is where my, my sweet spot is for, for hip and shoulder internal rotation for this person, giving them any more access to ER, IR, isn't going to be beneficial for sport and it's probably not going to be beneficial for health if they're feeling, if they're asymptomatic in the first place. So I don't necessarily need for everybody to be like, there's two extremes and it's early and it's late. And I don't necessarily need to bring everybody to the middle because you can probably imagine that living in the middle is not good either. So there are varying degrees of all of this. It's just about, you know, assessing kind of intervening and then reassessing and saying, okay, did this get us what we need to get? And, and hopefully we didn't go too far in the other direction because the, the good thing about working with a lot of professional athletes too, is that they're very adaptable. Like they are trainable. They understand their bodies. They take things very seriously because it's their job. And so they also love to overdo a lot of things. And so when you give them something that, that makes them feel better, better initially, um, you know, takes away symptoms or whatever they're doing. Um, they tend to overdo those things. Mm. And so it can sometimes send them into the wrong direction. And so we have to understand that like there is a balance for them and it's going to be specific for every person. So that's a really tough question to answer because, you know, I have two right-handed pitchers right now who are, are, you know, 
with coaching staffs treat them the exact same because they do the exact same thing. Um, they respond to stimulus very, very differently though. And so for one, I can have, you know, I, I probably need 55 degrees of ER to go with, with some IR for him. And the other one, I want to shut down as much, you know, ER movement as possible because he started to lose velocity on the ball really quickly when that becomes excessive. So it's going to be really, really, uh, variable based on the person you're working with. Um, in general, most athletes need to be able to come back or have access to come back to that. So there are varying degrees of that. And they're going to be, you know, those, those are going to be things that they don't live in that world. So you might as well expose them to some stuff. It's like, I had a conversation recently with the guy who works in the NBA and he's, he talked about like kind of their tendon prehab stuff that they'll be going through as the preseason comes up. And that's all early phase stuff. Like that's stuff that they don't get exposed to in sport. Most of their training is output driven. And so it's not going to allow them to, to tap into an early position. So you might as well spend a bunch of time doing ISO holds and, and making sure there's heavy heel clock contact on things because for the next nine months, they're not going to get any of it um, or maybe in very limited exposure. So um, I know hopefully that answered your question. Cause I think I kind of took that a bunch of different ways at the same time, but it's going to be really, really variable based on who you're working with and based on, you know, kind of where they're at in terms of being pushed forward or needing to come back. Um, and you just have to kind of play around with things and see what works for them as a person. And then, you know, make sure that you're tracking stuff on their end to, to, so that you're not taking away from their superpower at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, the way my mind kind of takes all that, my, my main thing, I guess that's my output is inputs and outputs is if a player is healthy, it's not, don't try to mess with it. Even if they're real, like they're inside of their shoes is all, you don't want to go and be like, oh, you're, this is such a recipe for disaster. You're going to end up, you wouldn't want to do that. Like, but if they do have like the inside of their shoes are all, you know, always all scuffed up, they are getting like knee issues or some sort of injury. Then you would want to do some interventions. Like, like I think like a front foot elevated split squat or something where they get more heel, more mid stance, you're showing them the opposite, but you like, you're saying don't do too much of that. Cause then you're at some point you're destroying their superpower. So it's like, you just want enough dose so that they can have enough balance to stay healthy. But beyond that, you are taking away what they're awesome at. Yeah. You don't want to make them more average. You just want to, to allow their superpower to be more pronounced by giving them some other options. Cool. Um, I love that. So on the flip side of things, I, I love what you said about the polarities too. It's so easy to want to make everybody the middle to make everyone that's just middle, this mellow middle ground. And, but no, like sport is awesome because of superpowers. That's why we, I mean, I love watching or people love watching the Olympics, right? You're seeing all the polarities. You're seeing all these amazing things that people can do. And especially in like track and swimming and gymnastics and all these polarities of the superpowers. But so someone who is more early stance and maybe this is younger athletes like i'd imagine if you play enough sport and you have pretty adept feet and ability like you'll eventually transition to being there but like but athletes who might be maybe too early stance the point where maybe they don't have enough output like do you have any thoughts on things like that or or if you see something like that interventions you might be looking at yeah no a lot of the times and this will go back it relates a lot to the to conversation we had about volleyball players and so um, if, if their shape and their, their internal bias is going to be towards inhalation, they're usually going to, to start out at least on, on that earlier side of things. Um, and, and 
maybe it's just that they can't transition well through the middle point because they have, you know, a low training age or they have low general strength qualities and force output. And so some of the training stuff initially can take that away. That's like when you work with kids, a lot of the times, like, like do a push up with a 13 year old and their belly immediately hits the ground and their shoulder blades are glued together because they have no quality of, of, you know, ability to kind of get rigid and, and use IR to their, to their advantage to pressurize. And so they just collapse on something like that. That's where a lot of kids live. And as they get older, kind of life takes you in different directions. So I kind of compare this a lot to, to, we do it at the gym, like compared a lot to like walking across the stream with a current. Um, a lot of the times based on your shape, it's going to tell you how you interact with that current and how far you go in the other direction. So currents coming from my right, I'm trying to walk to the other bank. I can either let the current start to take me to the left and start to flow down with the flow of the river. Um, or I can fight that current and I can go in a straight line, or I can start to turn back into the current and fight upstream. And so based on where you start is kind of where that strategy is going to take you. If I'm already someone who from a shape standpoint and from a, from a kind of genetic standpoint is designed towards going upstream, it's going to like, I'm going to fight that river by going upstream. If I'm someone, those tend to be like our, our higher end athletes. That tends to be the people who are able to, to compress and do all that stuff really, really well. If I'm middle of the road, I'm just going to get across. And if I'm someone who has no strategy to fight the stream at all, I'm just going to get swept downstream. So um, you, they're always going to start at a certain point. Usually kids start at the, I'm going to get swept downstream and then activities and, and whatever they've got doing where their genetic potential takes them is going to uh, determine, you know, how they actually get across. Um, but there are some shapes and some, you know, I still work with people right now who have a decent training age, who are fighting to manage to not get swept downstream all the time. And so it's just, you have to continue to focus on the same things and it, it gets a little bit redundant in their training because I have to focus on the same qualities of, of force output and, and general strength stuff all the time. But I also have to understand that like they are doing stuff outside that, that they're, you know, how they walk around on a daily basis is putting them back in a position. Um, and so I have to keep that in mind and keep trying to counteract that as much as I can. And, you know, I, I work in the private sector, go back to the conversation we had earlier, working in the private sector has its challenges also because I have times where I won't see a kid for two or three weeks because they're very heavy in their sports schedule. They've got school going on or something like that. And so when I lose somebody for that amount of time, those qualities don't stay high that entire time. They're a degradation of skills, just like anything else. If I don't practice a language, you know, for long enough, I'm going to lose the skill to, to speak in that language. And so um, they're going to lose those qualities and they're going to revert back to whatever genetic kind of base that they started at to deal with the common kind of variables on earth that we all deal with. So that's a tough one because there are so many kind of routes that people can go down and ways of dealing with, with, you know, the forces that, that we have to manage for sport. But um, yeah, I still have a ton of people right now that, that I don't know will ever be, you know, marching upstream or just making a smooth cut across. Yeah, I, I, I get you. I, it makes me think about the inputs and outputs too. I, I posted a video on Instagram, of my three-year-old son jumping off the fourth or fifth stair of the staircase and just landing. And it's just, 
pure inputs. Just like everything is just, just he is aligning his joints just to mash right into the ground. But it's just, it's so cool because like my daughter, who's two years older, almost like wouldn't do it. Like she would, and my son's just like, I'm good. And, but it's interesting. I'm interested to watch him as he gets older and stronger to see how those inputs start to change into more outputs and stuff like that. And I, I hear you with the, just the general lifestyle. It makes you wonder if we lived in like, I don't know, we were always like, jumping over logs or rocks or something and we just didn't have all these flat surfaces and chairs and how that would be different but you'd say then you mentioned just general strength i mean so basically like just that over just overcoming just generally being able to move weights in different ways plane shapes slowing things down to be able to form an output like that kind of thing is probably the main like that's really the core and maybe even more so than working on like late propul like how would how, what's like how, is there anything for the foot that fits into that like uh like just working off the ball of the foot more uh, in a bent knee position like any any thoughts with those types of things in terms of late propulsion for some of those i would call them i guess input heavy <laughs> uh type right. athletes right it's uh in general like when you build muscle so so muscle itself is biased towards ir because there is a compressive nature about it so whether you have like muscles aren't free thinking on their own. So like whether you are, you know, contracting a muscle or, 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 you know, lengthening a muscle, it is still compressive regardless of the situation that's happening. Um, so the more muscle mass you have on as a human, um, the more compressive by nature you become. That's why you can be someone who's a narrow ISA and still be incredibly springy, um, because of, of the muscle mass that you put on your upper body. That's good. And, and the relative hip shape that you have. So, um, you know, I've got basketball guys who are just like that. They've got a wide shoulder. They're still a narrow ISA, but they've got a wide shoulder and narrow hip, and they're still really springy and really strong looking. Um, when you add, you know, any type of, of strength that allows them, you know, for kids, we're talking more about like coordinative strength. So they, they're able to coordinate their muscles, you know, more uniformly and a little bit more succinctly. Um, that is going to increase their compressive abilities. And as soon as they are able to compress, they are going to start being driven forward. That is, um, that is the natural flow of things for us as humans is compression is going to be sacral nutation. It's going to be anterior tibial translation. So as soon as we start to, to add on muscle, you look at a guy like Justin and, and Justin loves like, uh, I'm going to say this in a joking way, loves like the shirtless pics on Instagram, like that dude is jacked. And so, um, his bias is going to be towards compression, um, innately there, there, his joints are being squeezed by musculature all the time. So that's going to limit range of motion. That's going to push him into IR and force production. Um, so as kids tend to develop, um, you're going to have kids again, like there, there are body shape things and, and genetics is going to play a part in that. Um, go back to the female volleyball player, like not predisposed to put on a ton of muscle mass. So, uh, ability to compress has to be very, very strategic in what I do. So again, like I'll put them in those compromising positions when they do a squat, because I'm understanding it from a long game perspective, like they're not going to be this person that you like walk down the street and like, man, they're yoked. Um, they got to have some other strategies that go into that. So for kids and, and, you know, younger adults and, and trained athletes, like you start to to give them the, the ability to produce force and they're going to start shifting forward in the, in, in terms of foot contact. So things are going to be driven forward because again, the sacrum is going to, to kind of be this overarching global perspective of where you're going to go. And the tibia is going to be the thing that we look at to be really, be really kind of 
focused on, on it's really easy to see what's happening at the tibia. So as soon as they start to transition forward, you know, we talk about how many athletes have, have, you know, some kind of patellar tendonitis or tendinopathy and it's, it's a force output related thing. Like you are constantly putting stress on, on the anterior part of your, your shin and your knee. And so those tissues are going to go under some stress because they're constantly like, those are the two things that right there on the front of your knee, that are going to push you back a little bit when you're constantly transitioning forward over it. Um, so yeah, those are like, it's really easy with kids because they usually start towards, towards the earlier position and, and you move them, um, really easily towards, towards middle and, and, and forward into late. So, so you'd say it's the weight room work, particularly where the tibia is going forward, that helps them to get more, just able to put their mass forward to be able to hopefully create more outputs, like versus if I did the weight, you know, did weights, but I really kept a vertical shin and I don't even know how many people do that anymore, but that would yeah, not be a good way to transition them to more of a output driven system. Yeah. Yeah. You want, you want to expose them, especially at that age to a lot of different types of movement. So like, don't, don't pigeonhole, like there, you have to realize that at some point, like their overarching bias is going to become more apparent when they become, you know, an adult. Um, so I try not to ever treat any of my kids like they are going to be early, early position for life. Um, I just try to expose them to a lot of things. And so, yeah, I give them some force output stuff. I give them some stuff that puts them in nutation or, you know, hinging and squatting them in, in different ways to give them exposure to that stuff and kind of see what works for them and, and where they're going to be able to be most successful in. And then it's kind of a waiting game to see, okay, you know, as this person continues to grow and develop, like what are their, where's their axial skeletal shape going to take them as they continue to go forward and all that stuff. Yeah. Sounds good. Uh, well, awesome. Well, I think I could, I could ask you a million more questions. I probably <laughs> got through actually two, two to maybe four of our formal questions, but it was, those are the best talks so many times. It's just so much fun uh, taking all the questions and really kind of digging into them. So Eric, man, I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your knowledge with us. No problem, Joel. Really appreciate you having me on, man. That wraps up another show. Thank you so much for being here. We will see you guys next week with another great guest. And if you enjoyed the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We'd really appreciate that. All right. We'll see you next week.